Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word that, that speaks to us. Thank you for your spirit that you've given to live within us and for your mighty angels that attend us. Now we pray you would work in us and through us as we consider the goodness of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus makes a remarkable statement in Luke chapter 12, and verse number 32. <clears throat> he said, Don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. You know, I'd like to live a life that way, a life beyond fear, not to be afraid. I'd like to live a life that way, a life lived in the reality of that kingdom, a kingdom of joy and peace, love. But if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to follow Jesus, if I'm going to change in his likeness, I need help. I need a way that keeps me close to God, that keeps me aware of his presence, and through which I can receive power that I don't have of myself. I need a way of life that's not superficial, that's not legalistic. I need a way of life that's not mechanical. I, but at the same time, it's just not the old way that everybody just drifts along in life. I need a different way of life. Often people think that becoming a Christian is just about professing Beliefs. Now, beliefs are important. Beliefs are foundational to the Christian experience, but one of the great illusions, even among church, church people, is that information will transform your life. It'll produce transformation. Now, information is important, very important. It shapes my thoughts. It directs my behavior, but... Information alone is not sufficient. Interestingly, in the early days of the church, the name given to the followers of Jesus, the community of Jesus, was the way. The way. You can see that in Acts chapter 9 and verse number 2 when Paul, actually Saul, the un unconverted Paul, was going after Christians, wanting to put them in prison. And he said he was going after those who belonged to the way. Reading on through the book of Acts, you notice a number of times in chapter 19, a couple of times, chapter 22, chapter 24, a couple of times, it refers to Jesus' disciples as followers of the way. It may be that early Christians referred to themselves that way, because of Jesus' words, and you know them, where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Other places in the New Testament re refer to Christianity as the way of God, Acts chapter 18, the way of truth, 2 Peter, and the new and living way in Hebrews chapter 10. They didn't call believers followers of a creed. They didn't call themselves believers 
in the fundamental beliefs. Now, fundamental beliefs are important. Believing what you believe is important. But when followers of Jesus were called believers in the New Testament, that doesn't mean that they were it's recognizing a, a creed. Rather, the word belief was the same word that's translated as faith and trust. So you could as easily say, instead of believers, they were trusters or people who were faithful. So to trust in Jesus, to follow Jesus, to believe in Jesus, means to follow in his way. Now in this series that we are starting this morning, and we'll continue for the next 12 weeks with some um, spots in between where we'll go astray a bit with other topics. But in this series, we're going to embark on what you might call a pathway of discipleship. We are all followers of Christ. We are disciples. And we're going to learn from God's Word and from a very special book, Steps to Christ, a spiritual framework, you might call it, of how to be a disciple, how we are students, learners, apprentices of Jesus. And it involves practices that are taken directly from the New Testament, from God's Word, and outlined beautifully in the 13 chapters of this little book called Steps to Christ. And we're calling this series Steps to Christ, Doing Life with Jesus. And if you want to benefit doubly from our time together, I would ask you to make a commitment to the whole deal. In other, in other words, not just this morning, not just next Sabbath, but every Sabbath. And I'd like to challenge you that you would come and you would live with these truths, that you would take these steps this way, and you'd come weekly, and also that you would come with raw honesty and deep and joyful sense of your spiritual inadequacy. <laughs> because we really are. We're, we're liars, we're cheats, we're failed parents, we're gossips, we're cranks, we're greedy, we're needy, we're anxious, we're proud, and we can't afford to live in pretense, with pretense or in hiding. So we want everyone, you know, I, I just challenge all of us that we would take these next weeks and with the resources and tools that, that we have that have been a blessing to me and to millions and that is this little book, Steps to Christ, for 125 years. It has been a blessing for millions of people. And my life, it's, it's been a blessing. It's been a tool for growing in the way. I've read it numerous times. And I'm reading it again numerous times each week, each chapter. And so I challenge you, take God's Word. Take this little book. Read it chapter by chapter. This week will be on chapter 1. Next week on chapter 2. You want to make this series, this time together, all the more meaningful, let God use it all the more powerfully in your life, then come prepared every Sabbath. And I'll do my best to talk to you about this subject in the most clear, practical, useful way I can. 
but if you want impact that will go even beyond, then do some preparation. And also, don't just leave it as sermon time, and then you'll just come and do the sermons together. You know, it's always been that way for followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus don't just have a Sabbath sermon time. There's talking together. There's, there's fellowship. There's joining and being part of small groups in Christ, which we're starting again our, our midweek. We've been doing 10 days of prayer. Midweek service starts, and we have a number of offerings. You can come Steve's uh, study in the morning. John Roney has one in the chapel at 6.30. I'm starting a men's group. There's women's groups. There's Sabbath school. Learn and pray and grow together. Talk with each other. Pray for each other. And our goal in this series is not just to be finished with the 13 weeks and be done. Our goal is that each step, each practice, each habit, each pattern that we see that's been a part of Jesus' life and a part of Jesus' followers' life since the very beginning, as we take each one of these, that they will help us to live close to God, to receive power from God, and to do life with God. So it's not just 13 weeks. It's, it's all of life. It's the rest of life. And by the way, the, the order that will follow, the chapters in this book don't represent chronological steps. As if there's some logical order to this thing. Rather, each week we will just look at foundational aspects of what it means to be saved, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to grow in His image. Each one of these topics we'll apply to our life. And so you might say, we'll never be done with this. <laughs> this is a series that will last forever until Jesus comes back. The learning, the growing, the God-inspired practices never stop in our lives. And today we start with the foundation, bedrock. This is the underpinning, you might say, of everything else that's part of the way and our life in the way. And that is the love of God. The love of God. This is the first. This is foremost. This is primary. This is the reality that makes the way. The love of God. Theologians, authors share and have shared over history that spirituality is grounded in God's love. Steps to Christ begins with this chapter. And the conviction goes even deeper. God's love not only starts the book, God's love determines everything in the book. Every dimension of our spiritual experience, every impact, every part of our life is impacted by this truth. As one writer said about the book Steps to Christ, divine love is a key principle that determines every dimension of our devotion to God, our faith, our existence. The love of God, that's the foundation of the Christian life. And so we start here. God's love. And we see it everywhere. We see it in nature. <clears throat> in the beauty of this white that's covered the ground for a season. <laughs> we see it. We love it. The pure snowfall that blankets the earth. The unique 
intricate quality of the crystals that, that turn the gray-brown earth into a, a blanket of beautiful, white, soft snow. We see it other places. We see it in the vast universe, in the black holes of pulsars, the quasars, the supernova, the, the neutron stars. We see it in nature. We, you know, only a few people... Only a few men and women have ever looked at the earth from, from space firsthand. But everyone that has are just taken back at the exceptional viewpoint that it gives. And they marvel at the beauty of this planet, the unique quality that, that separates it from everything else that, that we see out in space. In fact, we're looking for more places like it. You, you know that, don't you? Just this week, I learned that an Earth-sized planet was discovered by NASA's special transiting exoplanet survey satellite. It was launched back in 2018. You probably read about it, heard about it, and it's looking for planets that could possibly be like ours, and they know where to look. They know where such a thing might happen. It has to happen in what they call the habitable zone. That distance, that very special distance from a star where the temperatures are neither too hot nor too cold so that water can exist in liquid form. That's what's unique about this place, among many other things, about this home we have, this special place. What's unique about it is not that it's been transformed and changed slowly over time and through chance for billions of years. That's not what makes it unique. Because everything in the universe works just the opposite of that. It follows a principle called entropy where it goes from complex to simple. My family and I traveled to, went to spend a few days at Mount Rainier this summer and I bought some wood built a fire. And that campfire that I burned used logs that went from complex to simple. That's what a fire is. Entropy right in front of you. I took a tree structure and I turned it into ash, smoke, and gases. From complex to simple. You know, the only thing that made this earth something different than that is our creator God. Our sustainer God. The God who made everything. As the psalmist said, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. For he spoke, Psalm 33, 9. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Look at the wonders of nature. Just take it in today. Look at the beauty, the sunshine, the snow, the refreshing warmth that, that comes to us here on earth, the trees, the plants, the animals that thrive and adapt and, and multiply. Look at this place. While we were in California, <clears throat> we visited uh, a world-class aquarium in Long Beach, California, just outside of L.A. And there we, with our granddaughters, of course, uh, we, we stroked jellyfish, we touched sea urchins, we touched sea anemone and, and starfish. We, we watched sea otters play. And we watched shark and manta ray feed. 
we watched lion, sea lions bark. And all of this was just a testimony of God's amazing creation. Like Paul says in Romans chapter 1, he, he declares that creation <clears throat> de- declares God's sovereignty. Notice his words, verses 19 and 20. <clears throat> what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Yes, what God has made does declare <coughs> that God is love, that God is power, that God is sovereign Lord. The, the diverse ocean life, the array of earth landscape and seascapes, the winged creatures that fill the sky, the the plants that blossom and the delicate beauty from the tiniest living thing to the grandest blue whale which was suspended in this gigantic aquarium lobby. Blue whale. All speak to us. God is love. God is creator. It's God who supplies the needs of all his creatures. And all these things speak to us of God's love. God's creatures don't worry. They don't fret. I love the words of the psalmist again that says, in the eyes of of all who look to you and you give them food at the proper time, you open your hand and satisfy desires of every living thing. Yes, from God's hand, this place perfect came. This earth and everything in it, beautiful, balanced, joyful. There was no decay, no shadows, no dirt, no ill, no hurt. Even after Adam and Eve strayed and introduced the degradation that sin has brought, even after that, there's still such beauty because we live in that beauty. And when we look at a flower, yeah, there may be thorns, there may be thistles, but there's beautiful fruit and, and, and awesome blossoms. Nature still testifies, still tells us, still declares that God is love and tells us that he desires to, to help us, to help us thrive and make us happy. But despite the awesome beauty of nature, the enemy of good has clouded the truth of God's care, the truth of God's keeping. keeping. The, the deceiver has made God out to be uncaring, unloving, unkind. The deceiver has made God out to be harsh, overreaching in his expectations. The deceiver has made God out to be jealous for our mistakes and quick to judge and fast to condemn. The shadow that is cast over God by this fake news had to be removed. God had to do something. The world had to see what the infinite love of God was like. Nature was good, but it wasn't enough. The testimony about him through prophets was good and gave a good picture, but not clear enough. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why God in flesh had to live among us. Jesus came to show us what God is like. Jesus displayed God. When one of the disciples 
pled for a little bit clearer revelation. He said, show us the Father. You remember what Jesus said? He said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, verse 8. Jesus, if he was anything, he was revealing. He was God in human flesh. He was the one who came to proclaim the good news, the good news of God's saving grace. And he was the one who brought healing, healing to brokenhearted. He was the one who announced deliverance to a human race in bondage to destructive habits, thoughts, and emotions. He was the one who, who came and touched the eyes of the blind. He was the one who touched the ears of the deaf and brought hearing and sight. He was the one who, who frees the bruised and tattered. That's Jesus. That's God. That was his work. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of the Charles Schultz character named Pink, uh, Pigpen. You know, he's not often in the comics anymore. I don't know exactly why, but, you know, wherever Pigpen goes, there's a haze of dirt and debris, you know, wherever he's pictured. Well, you could, all, you could just say it just the opposite. Wherever Jesus went, there was a trail of joy, a trail of goodness, a trail of healing and health and restoration. That, that was everywhere Jesus went. <clears throat> Scripture says that when Jesus was in a village, there was, in some places, not a moan of sickness. Jesus had been there. Everyone was healed. That's, that's Jesus. That's, that's what, what God is about. That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants for me. I'm, I'm sticking with Mike Talley's inspiration. <coughs> he said, God has not three answers to prayer. Yes, no, and wait. Not two answers, uh, not three, but two. God answers yes or, you remember, something better. Yes, or so, that's the only two options for God. Yes, or something better. If our asks are something outside of the lines of God's providential leading in his way, then he always says to us, I got something better. It's not a no. It's something, something better. That's what God has. Something better. And I'd have to say, Jesus was just that. He was something better. People were, the scripture says, his first sermon in the synagogue, the first time he opened his mouth in the synagogue, uh, as an adult anyway, as a, as a boy he was there, but the first time in the synagogue preaching, this local synagogue were, uh, members there were uh, amazed. The people, it says, Mark chapter 1, verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. The power of his words were transforming. A demon-possessed man was there listening with the worshipers that Sabbath, and the devils inside him knew that their days were numbered now with Jesus. And they spoke through this man, saying in verse number 24, what do you want to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's exactly why Jesus came. To destroy the, to destroy the destroyer. He's the Holy One. 
He's God in human flesh. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. And his mission was to destroy the destroyer, to help the helpless. And his fame spread like wildfire throughout Galilee. Read the book of Mark. You'll be amazed. That evening after his time in the synagogue, he went to Peter's Peter mother, Peter's mother-in-law's house and, and healed her. And then it says that a whole, the whole town gathered at the door. I went online. They figured that there were 1,500 people in Capernaum at that time. All 1,500 were there. And Jesus brings everyone healing and hope and freedom and help and restoration because that's what God is. That's what he does You read it chapter after chapter in the book of Mark. The gospel writer recounts the transformation, the restoration, the healing, the freedom, the hope. Jesus was followed by a trail of restoration. The paralyzed man couldn't get to Jesus, so they lowered him down through the roof into the presence, and he was into the presence of Jesus, and he was doubly blessed. Not only was his body cured of paralysis, but his, his soul was cured of sin. In another synagogue, on another Sabbath day, Jesus met another man in need of help, a man with a withered hand, and Jesus brought healing and restored the Sabbath to a day of hope and healing. Jesus' command brought stillness to a storm-tossed sea. Jesus' command brought healing He walked on water. He feeds thousands with a boy's lunch. He raises the synagogue ruler's daughter from death. He restores hope and healing to a woman who was perpetually ill and ostracized from society. His touch brings healing to the deaf and sight to the blind. And His word clarifies truth, establishes justice, proclaims mercy and offers grace. And after all this that Jesus does in the book of Mark, reading through it, after all that Jesus does, he turns to his disciples in a quiet time, in a time alone with them, and he says to them, who do you say I am? And Peter says those immortal words, you're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. You are the anointed of God. You are the promised deliverer. You are savior of humankind. This is God in human flesh. This is the one who would bring us hope. This is the one. His words clarified the truth. His miracles were demonstrations of his person that we might know him, that we might be assured and have confidence and have faith in him. In every human being, in everyone, Jesus saw something worth saving in everyone. That's why he came. He came to save. That's why you're here. Because you've accepted his touch. You felt his love. He came to serve you. He came to serve me. After about three years or so of all these this flurry of amazing things, miracles and mercy and grace and justice that's, that's lived out before the people. Jesus then foretells his end. 
again to his disciples, again privately. And he says to them, Mark 8, 31, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he might be, must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus' mission, Jesus' mission was healing, yes. It was a ministry of mercy. Jesus' mission was a model, yes. It was a demonstration of God's love. But Jesus' mission was also substitutionary. He would save us from eternal destruction. Jesus' mission was also payment. He would die in my place. Steps to Christ says it this way, the spotless Son of God took upon Himself the burden of sin. And we know it in this verse, in Paul's words, Romans 8, I mean 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, there's a payment. Yes, there's a result. There's a consequence to lying, to cheating, to stealing and killing and lust. There's a, there's a consequence to, to pride and greed. All those things have consequences. <clears throat> they, they don't just need a pardon. They need a pardon, but they need something more. They, something graver is at stake. As, uh, as one author put it, they need a lifeline. Sin is not harmless behavior. There's death in it. There's death because of it. And God doesn't react to that like some kind of a harsh judge who impassively, arbitrarily meets out justice against it. He's like a wounded lover, pained by rejection. It's, it's personal for God. The words of Hosea say it best. When I was a child, when Israel was a child, I loved him. God is speaking. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of Human kindness with ties of love to them. I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. Picture it. I bent down to feed them. Christ died in my stead. He took upon himself the penalty that I deserve. There's no dichotomy in the Godhead. It's not as though God is the harsh one, God the Father is the harsh one, and Jesus is the loving one. It's not as though the Father in heaven is punitive and vengeful and the Son is forgiving and graceful. Christ's coming, His sacrifice was not an appeasement. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to, the world to Himself. And the steps of Christ says it so powerfully. The Father loves us not because of the great propitiation. That word means Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The Father loves us not because Christ died for us on the cross. That's not why He loves us. He provided the, the propitiation. He provided Christ on the cross because He loves us. But when Peter heard this prediction, when Peter heard these words that Jesus would have to suffer and be falsely tried and die for our sins, when Peter heard these words, 
about what was going to happen. He took Jesus aside. You remember the story. He took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Rebuked Jesus. And Jesus' response was swift and harsh. He said to him, get behind me, Satan. Because to bring safety, it would have to be this way. None but Jesus could do it. Only Jesus, only the one who knew the height and the depth of God's love, only this one could express the greatness of God's love. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And so when you think about that, you think about what God has done for us in Christ, you think of his love for us, what high hopes he must have for us. If he thinks that much of us, if he's done that much for us, how high must be his value and esteem for us? The Apostle John could hardly even put it to words. He was astounded by, by God's interest, his care, and his, his love for us. It was, it was too expansive, too amazing for words, too big, too great. And so challenged to even express it, he said it this way in 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Behold this love that we should be called Children of God. Children of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, yours truly, yours truly is the son of Dean, the son of Verl, the son of, the son of God. The son of God. The son of God. That's what I've become in Christ. The son of God. Knowing that he loves me, knowing the way he thinks of me, that has been transformative in my life. Absolutely. His love for me isn't a long shot. His acceptance of me is not conditional. He's willing. He's eager. He wants. He wants to have me. You know, when I first set my eyes on a young lady named Wafia my first year at Walla Walla College back then. Walla Walla College back then. She was a freshman and I was a fourth year freshman. Okay, it's always taking me a bit longer. <clears throat> and when I saw her, I thought it was a goddess on earth she played the flute like the angels. I'd never heard an angel, but it must have been something like that. And she was sweeter than pie, although I never tasted her. But I knew she must be. <laughs> and I don't remember the occasion, but something moved me to present a token of my interest. So, you know, this... This... Uh, scornful fellow. <laughs> the only thing I could think of was to gather a bundle of weeds and put them in a bottle and present them to the girl's dorm to be given to this young lady. And I was sure that would do it. <laughs> Just to let you know how far off I am, I also thought it'd be fun to ride bikes on our honeymoon, so I brought them too. There's no hope, I'm sorry. There's no hope. 
So I admired from a distance for three, year, three years, and I hoped that those weeds would do the talking. <laughs> but really, I assumed that she was beyond my league. Just, you know, a nice thought, but impossible. But my senior year, I returned from fall quarter at Auburn Academy doing student teaching. And it was February, and Walla Walla College Girls Club had scheduled a girl-ass-guy banquet. Mercy. Yeah. And Wafia asked me to the banquet. I couldn't believe it. The goddess was interested in me. <laughs> so I slobbered, I stammered, and I said, well, of course, yes, and we've been going steady ever since. <laughs> you know, the way I think of it, that's exactly the way, well, not exactly, multiply it by a few billion, but that's the way it is with us and God, isn't it? It seems beyond our wildest imagination that he would be reaching out to us the way that he is, doesn't it? I mean, how could it be that the God of the universe loves us so, but he does, he does, he does. It seems impossible that he would direct attention toward us, uh, me, with my kind of curbside appeal. I'm just flabbergasted at that. But he does. He loves me. He loves you. He paid the ultimate sacrifice to make himself our Savior, your Savior, my friend, your advocate. That's what he did. His mission is to save. His sacrifice is to redeem. His love is to exemplify. And he invites me. He invites you. Be a child of the king. A child of the king. Children of God. My challenge to you today. Hey, say yes. Say yes. Who wouldn't say yes? It's the best decision you'll ever make. By far, hands down, the best ever. Say yes today to God's love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you love us so amazingly, with such, with such power, such effort, and such commitment. You've given yourself for us. You've lived life for us. You've done it perfect. And you gave your life in sacrifice, in substitutionary atonement. You, you died for us paying the penalty for our mistakes so that we could be welcomed in your kingdom. Welcome today as your children. And today, all of us here, all of us here, say to you, yes, yes, thank you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. <laughs>